as a community, as individuals, as a society, culture, we are, are very interested in the subject of greatness. Uh, who, who was the greatest president? The greatest quarterback of all time? It's a question this past week people have asked. Uh, the greatest author? Uh, these, these are but a, a few questions that we are, are genuinely interested in. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're even a bit concerned at times with, with our own greatness, aren't we? Uh, perhaps we want to be a great preacher, a great mom or dad, a great uh, student, a great teacher, a, a great musician, a great public servant, a great Bible study leader, uh, a great lawyer. Glad you didn't laugh at the last one. Uh, I think there is such a thing probably somewhere as a great lawyer. Um, we, we are interested uh, in the subject of greatness, and we ourselves want to be great. But truth be told... Uh, there, there are some things about each of us that are admittedly not so great. Um, perhaps we struggle with impatience, uh, as we talked about earlier in the discipleship hour. Or when we're faced with, with opposition and obstinacy, perhaps we're tempted to, to lash out in anger. Sometimes you and, and I both fail to live up to the greatness to which we even aspire. You know, our, our ultimate hope has is never, has never, and will never be in our own greatness. Our hope of redemption from our lack of greatness, from our sin, in the sight of God, is found only in a great Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we get to rejoice in and think about this morning from Matthew chapters 11 and 12. And if I had to summarize in in one sentence what this portion of the Gospel of Matthew is about, it would be this. Matthew chapters 11 and 12 are all about the greatness of Jesus Christ and our response to Him. Matthew chapters 11 and 12 are all about the greatness of Jesus Christ and our response to Him. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, then you can find the passage beginning on page 816. 816. And, and let's begin by considering some of the background and context concerning Matthew's Gospel. Um, the author of Matthew's Gospel, you might guess, is, is Matthew. He was a Jewish tax collector. Um, we've considered so far in Matthew's Gospel his own personal call by Jesus Christ to become one of his disciples, one of his followers. That was what we looked at in our last study together. And because Matthew is one of his followers, he's an eyewitness to what's going on in Jesus' life and ministry. Therefore, he's he's very qualified to tell us about Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew is an evangelist at heart, though. He, He has a purpose. He has an aim and purpose in writing this gospel. And it's to convince his hearers, his readers, that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the long awaited Jewish Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised. And pointed forward to. Matthew has proven his case in several different ways in the first ten chapters of this gospel. He has pointed to Jesus' lineage, the location of his birth, and the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. He highlighted Jesus' heavenly approval by God the Father. His sinless character in the face of temptation by Satan. And his initial ministry. Matthew further proved that Jesus was the Messiah through his authoritative teaching. He was the one in whom the law found its fulfillment. And then in our study of chapters 8, 9, and 10 two weeks ago, we saw that from, far from being a, a random collection of Jesus' miraculous works in those chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, that Jesus' deeds in those chapters were signs proving that he was the one whom the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. So let's, let's actually pick up where we concluded our last study. Take a look at Matthew chapter 11. I want to begin reading in verse 2. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. 
and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus, he answers John's question here by quoting from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. These were the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. In other words, Jesus answers John's question, are you the one, by effectively saying, yes, John, I am the one. Now, while John's question here and Jesus' answer marks the conclusion of the previous section of Matthew's gospel, kind of summarizing all that went before. He, he healed the lame, he cleansed lepers, he raised the dead, he did all of these things. While it marks something of a conclusion, uh, it also functions as something of a transition to what we're going to be studying together this morning, too. Think about it. We, we can hear a bit of uncertainty in John's question, can't we? This uncertainty at the beginning of chapter 11 transition and grows into outright opposition over the course of these two chapters. Those around Jesus are more than uncertain about him. In fact, they are actually opposed to him. Those verses about John and his uncertainty form a useful transition for Matthew to ease us as his readers into the tense and open conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. And here's how tense it gets. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, we're told that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus about how to destroy him. We'll get to that very tense moment in due course. But for now, let's follow the path of this escalating opposition from the beginning. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 17 to 24, we learn that one's perspective on John, John the Baptist, is deeply connected to one's perspective on Jesus. Do we understand John's greatness? Do, do we understand his role in the course of redemptive history? And do we understand our own role in the course of redemptive history? Let's turn now and consider our first point, the greatness of John. And I think there's an outline there provided for you in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. So here we're looking at the greatness of John. And let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 11 and read just verses 7 to 19 here. Verses 7 to 19. As they went away, those are John's disciples, are going away. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like the children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I wonder if you noticed the, the transition taking place in these verses. Jesus, he begins by speaking about John and his ministry, but he concludes by speaking about himself, the Son of Man. What's the connection? Well, the reality is, is that their ministries, Jesus and John's ministry, are indivisibly connected. Jesus' ministry comes as a consequence of John's. That's the right order it had to take place in God's plan of redemptive history. It, it could be no other way, and Jesus, he wanted everyone to know it. And this is part of what makes John so great. Notice that John's disciples didn't ask Jesus their question in private too. 
In other words, when, when Jesus replied to John's disciples by telling them that he was the one that they were to expect, there's a crowd standing around there listening in. And Matthew tells us that as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Matthew has already made plain the connection between Jesus and John in chapter 3, verse 3. There Matthew said that John fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5. And as the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And Matthew, he, he almost certainly got this idea from Jesus, who publicly confirms this in verses 10, 13, and 14 here. Jesus also says there's, there's something special about John that needs to be recognized. John is a prophet, but he's a special prophet. No other prophet was the subject of prophecy. And no other prophet would so immediately prepare the way for the God of heaven to come to earth. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? John plays a pretty prominent, great role in the course of redemptive history, in the course of God's plan to send his son. Now, Jesus is rarely ever one to stop. He's one that likes to keep going. And that's what he does in verse 11. John is great, Jesus says, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, how can that, how can that be? John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He proclaimed that the Messiah would come and did come. John's proclamation occurred before the completion of the work of Jesus Christ. John could only proclaim what Jesus would do. But all those who live on the other side, the cross and resurrection, can proclaim what Jesus has done. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you, you, you need to hear what Jesus is saying about you. You are the ones who are least in the kingdom of heaven. And you have a privilege greater than John's because you can proclaim that Jesus has lived, has died, and has been raised from the grave. You can proclaim the work of Jesus Christ with greater clarity than John did. Jesus is not saying that you or I are personally in and of ourselves greater than John, as though we're more holy than him or something like that. No, what Jesus is saying is that we occupy a greater place in the history of redemption because we can proclaim the inauguration of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. We can proclaim not simply that Jesus would come or has come. We can proclaim not simply that Jesus would die and be raised. More than this, we can proclaim that Jesus has lived and died and been raised from the dead. That his earthly work is done. John is great. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, Jesus says. We have the great privilege of proclaiming our great Savior. So let's exert great effort to make his great name known. Let's, let's carve out space and time in our lives to engage our unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers with Jesus. Let's, let's make proclaiming his great name a great priority in our lives. This is the way in which the kingdom of heaven advances through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But Jesus makes clear in verse 12 that such proclamation has faced fierce opposition from the very beginning. And what is striking about this observation about opposition to Jesus and the proclamation that he is the Messiah and Savior is that he, Jesus, he still invites his hearers to believe. In verse 14, he says, if you are willing to accept it, and in verse 15, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is effectively saying, if the Lord has so worked in your heart that you may hear and believe what I am saying, that John came to prepare the way for me and that I'm the Messiah, if the Lord has so worked in your heart that you may hear and believe what I'm saying, then hear and believe. Sadly, Jesus seems to know the disposition of the hearts of many of his hearers. They are unwilling to accept what he is saying about John and himself. Jesus reflects on what he calls this generation. This is a, a description or a designation that Jesus will use to describe his contemporary and unbelieving audience. This generation, according to Jesus, is like children who are unmoved by the news that reaches their ears. They don't rejoice when joy is appropriate. 
and they don't mourn when sorrow is suitable. This generation lacks the appropriate response to John's proclamation and Jesus' arrival. We see that in verses 18 and 19. They, they dismiss John and they ridicule Jesus. Perhaps it was because John and Jesus didn't fit the mold that they were expecting. John was dressed in an unusual attire. And Jesus, well, rather than taking up arms against Roman authorities to free the Jewish people, he sat down and took his place among tax collectors and sinners. John was a different kind of prophet than they were expecting. And Jesus was certainly a different kind of Messiah than they were looking for. Jesus and John weren't the kind that this generation wanted to receive. Children, youth, young adults, what kind of Savior are you looking for? Are you looking for a Savior who, who makes life easier? Or one who makes you popular and, and well-liked by others, who gets you out of jams? Jesus is a far greater Savior than that. He has a much greater agenda than that. He has come to save us from our sins and to transform us into his own glorious likeness. Children, youth, let me encourage you to talk to your parents. Talk honestly about what kind of Savior you feel like you need. And talk with your parents about what kind of Savior Jesus really is. About what he came to do for all of those who would come to him in faith. Talk about whether or not your expectation of a Savior, what you think you need for a Savior, matches up with Jesus' real mission that he describes here in Matthew's Gospel. You know, it is this generation's response to the announcement of the kingdom's arrival that leads Jesus to denounce and pronounce woes on several cities. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, you look at that, you'll see Jesus announcing these woes. And, and let's get one thing straight right away here. Jesus is not throwing a verbal temper tantrum because he has not been received by his own. Jesus is certainly warning of coming judgment. And that's a gracious and merciful thing to do. But what is equally certain is that he is doing so with great pity. These were cities who saw the mighty works of Jesus. They should have known by the miracles that he was performing who he was. Those miracles revealed his identity as the Savior and King. But they did not. They refused to see and believe. They have not danced with joy at his coming. And they have not mourned and repented in response to his preaching. Jesus, you may notice there, reserves the harshest of woes for Capernaum. Capernaum served as kind of the launching point of Jesus' ministry, kind of home base for him. Jesus basically says that if Sodom, of the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah, saw his ministry firsthand like Capernaum did, then Sodom would have repented. Jesus saying, Capernaum, you're no Sodom. It's striking to think about. Capernaum, you're no Sodom, according to Jesus. And that is why it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and for Capernaum. Isn't that sobering? If they should have known and understood and believed in Jesus, then how much more should we know, understand, and believe in Jesus, who have the fullness of God's revelation about him? Especially since we've been exposed to greater revelation than that of John. Well, let's now turn and consider our second point, the greatness of Jesus. It is in the heat of the conflict in Matthew 12 that we see Jesus revealed or declared over and over again as great. The problem is, is that his hearers don't see his greatness. But let's make sure that we do. Uh, let's take a look at the greatness of Jesus, beginning with there with the first eight verses of chapter 12. So read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8 with me. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. 
But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you would have known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now up to this point, up to this conversation, we have yet to encounter any real direct conflict in our passage. Jesus has kind of simply stated the hostile attitude that persists among his contemporary hearers. Here, of course, we see that attitude begin to bubble up to the surface. The Pharisees point out that Jesus' disciples who are plucking heads of grain in order to satisfy their hunger are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, according to Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, the practice of working on the Sabbath was prohibited. To label what the disciples do as working is a bit of a stretch. Uh, the disciples were merely plucking some heads of grain. They, they weren't reaping the crop. If you can't attack the guy, the person you really want to attack for doing something wrong, then you go for those who are related to him. That's what the Pharisees are doing. Jesus, he doesn't really actually pick up the Pharisees' argument and kind of play on their turf. He doesn't debate the letter of the law. Instead, he points out two examples from the Old Testament in which David and the priests in the temple did something similar to the disciples. And he rhetorically asks them, have you read the law? These teachers of the law, of course they had. Now, if we stopped here, we, we might think that Jesus' point is that what the disciples did was analogous to what David did or what the priests did. And, and therefore, their actions fell into, um, fell into categories, which is kind of exceptions in which existed in the law. Though that might be the case, that's not actually Jesus' argument. His argument is found in verse 6. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. You see, Jesus' argument is bound up in the concept of identity. Jesus' argument is bound up in the identity of David and the priests and the temple. And more importantly, his own identity. After Jesus' rhetorical questions in verses 3 through 5, you can almost hear the Pharisees thinking to themselves, so you think you're in the same class as David? You think you're in the same category as a priest? Do you think you're, you're playing on the same field as these guys? Who, who do you think you are? I, I love how, um, how Douglas Sean O'Donnell describes what Jesus' response in verse 6 effectively amounts to. He writes, quote, Jesus says, oh, oh no, I'm not equal to a priest. I'm greater than a priest. I'm greater than the priesthood. Hold on to your phylacteries. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is not merely greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the place where they work. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, I think. The temple was the main place where the Sabbath was celebrated in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying that he is even greater than the place where the Sabbath found its grand culmination each week. The temple was greater than the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying that he's even greater than the temple. We know from the other synoptic gospels, uh, Mark and Luke, and especially the second chapter of John's gospel, that Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of the temple. Before the Pharisees can even respond to what Jesus said in verse 6, Jesus tells them in verse 7, that if they had known what God meant by Hosea, what he said in Hosea 6, 6, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, they would have not condemned the guiltless. The disciples were hungry. And if the Pharisees really loved God, they would have loved these men too. They would have shown their love for them by having compassion on them and mercy upon them and desired that they eat to relieve their hunger. And to this, Jesus adds another reason, the supreme reason that the disciples are guiltless. Look at verse 8. For, here's the reason that they wouldn't have condemned the disciples, because 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the one who established the Sabbath. He is the Lord, the very one who created the Sabbath. This conflict is not actually over the Sabbath, and it's not about the Sabbath. It's about the one who has the authority to determine the purpose and practice of the Sabbath. It is about the identity and authority of the great Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus saying, I am he. So, I don't actually have application for you on this text on how to spend your Sunday. Uh, This text is not about that. This text is primarily about whether or not, is not primarily about whether or not you may play sports on Sunday, or watch sports, or go shopping, or go out to a restaurant after church. This text is about whether or not we recognize that Jesus is the great Lord of the Sabbath. If you recognize that, then you will begin to have a framework for how you must spend your Sundays. And not just your Sundays, but every day. You you spend it for the glory and honor of the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of all time. This same point is driven home in the second conflict concerning the Sabbath. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, right after the passage we just read. This time, the Pharisees, they, they aren't asking questions about Jesus' disciples. Now they're asking questions about him. They ask him if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It's such a strange question, isn't it? Is it lawful to do good to another person? To to help another person? To heal another person on the Sabbath? Of course it is. It, It would be lawful to help a sheep who's in trouble. And if it's lawful to help a sheep, then of course it is lawful to help and heal a man made in the image of God on the Sabbath. How much more valuable is a man than an animal? How could anyone ask such a question? Look look at the end of verse 10. They ask Jesus' question so that, this is the reason they're asking, so that they might accuse him. This silly question springs from sinful motives. It was never about the Sabbath. It was all about accusing Jesus. And we need to recognize this tendency. When we get angry and when we want to seek revenge, our judgment will be severely clouded and irrational. Sin is blinding. And you almost wonder if these men could actually hear themselves speak and ask this question. Is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? Have you ever, um, have you ever listened to yourself when you're angry? Like the thoughts that are going through your mind. And not just allowing them to keep passing through, but to stop and think, okay, what, what am I saying with these thoughts? It's it's vile, isn't it, when we think about it? We need God's mercy. And praise God that Jesus is full of mercy. Jesus shows supreme mercy to this man afflicted with a withered hand. He gives him rest from that affliction. He expresses the very purpose of the Sabbath in this healing. And what else would we expect from the great Lord of the Sabbath? Through this healing, he once again reveals that he is the God who rules over creation, who has come to push back the effects of the curse. And how do the Pharisees respond to this good news that the Lord of the Sabbath has come into their very presence? Well, they respond by leaving his presence to conspire against him. They wanted to destroy him, to put him to death. While they were asking him about a violation of the fourth commandment, they were developing their plans to violate the sixth. Another episode of conflict emerges in these chapters too, which through these these conflicts, we we see the greatness of Jesus Christ revealed. Uh, The next scene is, is there in verses 22 to 32. In these verses, Jesus acts mercifully towards someone else too. He relieves a man of his demon possession, heals him, causing him to speak and to see. The Pharisees, however, suggest that in verse 24, that it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Frankly, this isn't a new scenario in Matthew's gospel. Already once before, Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus has been charged with casting out demons by the prince of demons. It's clear that the religious leaders of the day don't get what's going on. 
Once again, they, they think Jesus is possessed by the chief demon, Satan. And, and that's why he's able to kind of order around these other lesser demons. It's a pretty absurd notion. Just thinking rationally, rationally about the matter. Why would Satan work against himself? That's Jesus' point in verse 27. What is new about this scene is what Jesus says in verses 28 and following. Here, Jesus reveals that his great power to cast out demons is actually proof of who he has been claiming to be, the the promised Messiah. His casting out demons is proof of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Though complete victory over Satan and his minions has not been established, the decisive battle has been won. The only question that remains, according to Jesus in verse 30, is whether or not men will be with Jesus or against him. This is the all-important context of the ever-vexing question concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is basically attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God, as one scholar put it. It's attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. And it stems from uh, unbelief and a fundamental and final rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you fear that you have committed or are in danger of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then you need to understand what Jesus is saying in verses 33 to 37. The Pharisees, you see, they have just spoken careless words about Jesus and His work, what He was doing in chapter 12, verse 24. Their words revealed what was in their hearts. If you're concerned or fearful that you've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then you need to ask yourself, have I attributed to Satan what has been accomplished by the power of God? Have I called Jesus' uh, Jesus' spirit-driven life, work, and ministry evil? Have Have I questioned His greatness? Have I finally rejected Him as my Savior? If you have not finally rejected Jesus as your Savior and claimed that the great work of God is evil, then I don't believe that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry was surely right when he said that those who fear they've committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. So often a great deal of focus is given to this unforgivable sin. And rightly so, but I think but think for a minute about all of the sins that can be forgiven. Read what Jesus so clearly says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. There is only one sin which will not be forgiven, but all others will. All of your sins can be forgiven. Do not finally reject Jesus or the work of the Spirit, but come to Him in faith, and all of your sins can and will be forgiven. So great is Jesus that evil words spoken about Him are deserving of severe judgment, but so great is Jesus that He can also forgive those sins. And consider this, Jesus is speaking this as a word of warning to the Pharisees. These men who have so fiercely opposed him and plotted his death. How patient and gracious is our Savior. If only we would speak to our enemies, to our friends, to our spouses and children with such patience and grace. There's one more scene revealing Jesus' greatness through conflict that we need to consider. And that takes place in the Pharisees' demand a sign. Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, we read this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. It's an amazing demand when you think about all that has taken place before. Just in these two chapters alone, just in chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand, And given a man sight and speech, not to mention driving out a demon while openly declaring that such a healing revealed is a sign that the kingdom of God had come upon them. If we wanted to reach back further into Matthew's gospel, we would see 
that because of Jesus, the, the blind see, the dumb speak, the deaf hear, demons have been driven away, the lame walk, lepers have been cleansed, and the dead live. They want a sign. Is there, is there really anything that Jesus could do to persuade them to believe? I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on the Pharisees, though. People in our day want a sign from God. They want God to prove himself real to them. And maybe you've wanted that. Have you ever shared your faith with someone and they've kind of blown you off saying something like, that sounds great at all, but um, it's, it's just that uh, it doesn't seem real to me. Perhaps if, if, if God gave me a kind of sign or signal in the sky, I think that I, I might believe in him. The reality is, is that Jesus, that God has given them a sign. And it's Jesus' resurrection from the dead. No more sign is needed to prove that he is real and active and at work in our world. And what greater sign could be given than Jesus' resurrection from the dead? And even though the Pharisees may not deserve the harshest of our criticism, I suspect that they didn't really want a sign. In fact, Jesus tells them that no sign will be given to them except for one. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus compares Jonah's time entombed in the belly of the fish to the time that he will spend entombed in the heart of the earth. In other words, he predicts his death and resurrection. And then he goes on to compare Jonah's preaching to his. Both were called to preach a message of repentance. Jesus' point is not merely to reveal the commonality that exists between himself and Jonah. His point, as you see there in the text, is that someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is here to do a greater work than that of Jonah. He will spare men not from physical death, but from sure and certain spiritual death. Do you realize that Jonah... The book of Jonah was written in part to reveal to us that Jesus is a much better prophet than Jonah. Jonah disobeyed God's word and fled from the place where his mission was to take place. Jesus obeyed God's word. He set his face toward Jerusalem, not away from it like Jonah did. He marched toward the place of his mission. He marched toward his death. It was Jonah's disobedience that sent him into the raging sea to be swallowed up by a great fish. But it was Jesus' obedience that sent him to the cross where he would endure wave after wave of God's wrath and so be swallowed up in death. Three days after his death, he emerged from the tomb victorious. He is greater than Jonah. Here's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. The Ninevites listened to Jonah and repented. Someone greater than Jonah is here, right here in your very midst, and you, you are not listening. The Pharisees' failure to listen is what connects Jesus' next statement there in verse 42. You see, the queen of Sheba, she traveled a great distance to listen to the eminently wise Solomon. But what does Jesus say? Someone greater than Solomon is here. How much more should this generation listen to Jesus? How much more should we listen to him? In fact, Jesus underscores the danger of failing to listen to him now, today. There in verses 43 to 45, referencing that sign that he just performed in freeing the man from demon possession, Jesus points out that the danger that this generation faces is even greater now that they have heard the voice of the king, now that they've seen who the Messiah is. As Craig Blomberg points out, ownership by the devil must be replaced with ownership by Christ. Otherwise, one release, one's release is only temporary. Satan will always return to attack with increasingly worse designs. In the words of Jesus in verse 45, the last state of the person will be worse than the first. There's no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. 
You will either be driven by evil rebellion and despise Jesus, or you'll be a faith-filled disciple who marvels at the greatness of Jesus Christ. We've considered the greatness of Jesus, how he is greater than King David, greater than the priests, greater than Jonah and Solomon. In other words, having considered the greatest prophet, priest, and king of all, I want us now to consider our third and final point, the great invitation. And what is the great invitation that's buried in these two chapters? The great invitation that these two chapters send out to us is the invitation to enter the family of God. And as we consider this, read Matthew chapter 11. So flip back to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 25. That's where we're going to begin reading. And listen to all of the familial connections we see here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, these verses, they come on the pitiful woes over the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They heard Jesus' teaching, but they did not understand it. Those cities did. They saw Jesus' mighty works, but they did not really see. Their hearts were dull, their ears were heavy, and their eyes were blind. Then, right there in public, Jesus openly declares and prays to thank God the Father for concealing the nature of Jesus' person and work from wise and prideful men. And yet at the same time, Jesus thanks God the Father for revealing the nature of His person and work to the little children. Jesus is not describing the natural heart dispositions of two groups of people as though some are naturally haughty and some are naturally humble. Now the truth is that we're all proud. We all want to be great. The truth is that we all need to be humbled. And if anyone is to see the saving power of Jesus Christ, God must reveal it to them. The revelation of the saving power of Jesus Christ is in the Father's hand. This is the way in which the Father is pleased to save sinners. Salvation is all of His gracious will, as Jesus says right there in verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, lest you think that God is unfair in revealing the saving power of Jesus Christ to some and not others, let us remember that He is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is His universe, and He can and will do as He pleases. And He is not wrong to do so, but right to do so. Furthermore, God is not being unfair. He is being gracious in revealing the saving power of Jesus Christ. Do you, do you want to meet the justice of God due to your sin? Or do you want to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Now, if you're offended by the idea that God's sovereignty in salvation is gracious and good, then I want to encourage you to consider the fact that Jesus views God's sovereignty in salvation as gracious. That's what he says there in verse 26. As a people who claim to follow Jesus, we must see God's dealings in this world from his perspective and agree with him. Jesus even takes the matter a step further. He not only takes a positive perspective on God's sovereignty and salvation, but in verse 27, he also makes clear that he works in indivisible concert with God the Father to that end. The Father reveals the Son, bringing sinners to faith, and the Son reveals the Father to those sinners thus bringing them into a relationship with the Father. Through the Father and the Son's gracious revealing, outcasts and orphans become adopted children of God. Those who know what they deserve for their sins, 
those who know that they deserve the justice of God cannot help but be moved by the grace of God in the salvation of sinners. And so how glorious are Jesus' next words there in verse 28. Come to me. Can't you hear your Savior calling to you? Come to me, he says. Could there be a more gentle, generous, and gracious invitation from our Savior? And he knows just who we are, doesn't he? He knows that we are in need of rest. He knows that all of your anxieties about tomorrow and your future and the salvation of your children wear you out. He knows that all of your strivings for a grand name, a a bright career, a cozy home, and a comfortable retirement leave you drained. He, He knows that the sins that you battle in public and private build up nothing but weariness and exhaustion. And so he says to you and to me, a restless people, come to me and I will give you rest. And he holds it out, not just as an invitation to hope, but a promise and an assurance that we will have it. He says, come to me and you will, you will find rest for your souls. And to enter in to that rest that Jesus offers, you must come to him in faith. By believing in the Son, you are made a child of the Heavenly Father. And thus have the promise of eternal rest in the Father's heavenly home. Now flip over to the end of Matthew 12, because this invitation to enter into God's family continues. Take a look at verses 46 to 50 now. While he was speaking, this is Jesus, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Who appears in this scene? Jesus' family members, his physical mother and brothers stand outside while his spiritual mother and brothers sit inside listening to his teaching. And did you notice who else appears in this scene? God the Father also appears there in these verses. In both passages, little children, brothers and sisters, or siblings of Jesus appear. How does one come into a relationship with Jesus and so become a child of God? Well, by coming to Jesus for rest as we've just considered, and by by doing the will of the Father in heaven. And how do we do God's will? What does it mean to do God's will? It means to respond to Jesus' invitation to come to Him for rest by truly perceiving His greatness and embracing Him in faith. That's what it means to do God's will, to embrace Jesus Christ in faith by believing that He is the one whom the Father has sent. Flip back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. This section, verses 18 to 21, is a quotation of Isaiah's prophecy that we heard read earlier in the service. And for what I understand, it's Matthew's longest quotation of the Old Testament scriptures in his gospel. You see, this is what the Pharisees were not seeing about Jesus and what we need to see. Read Matthew chapter 8, 8, 12, verses 18 to 21. Behold, hear, see, look, this is him. Behold, my servant. Whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew, he views Jesus' withdrawal from the conflict with the the Pharisees through the lens of fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This is the passage we read earlier in the, the, the service today. The Pharisees want to destroy him, to put him to death, but Jesus is completely in control of his destiny. The Pharisees and the unbelieving generation surrounding Jesus would not 
choose him for their Messiah. But God would and has. Jesus is God's son in whom he is well pleased. He is the father's servant upon whom his spirit rests. He is the one who, though confronted by opposition, did not quarrel, but rather withdrew. He is the one who will not break a bruised reed, but offer rest to the weary and heavy laden. Justice will have its victory through his death on the cross. And in response to his saving work, though many Jews will reject him, many Gentiles will place their hope in him. It is through Jesus, this great Savior and Son of God, that we become the sons and daughters of God. It is through faith in Jesus that we become his brothers and sisters. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to consider the greatness of Jesus Christ. You have sinned and rebelled against God, but Jesus has not. You have doubted God's purpose and plans, perhaps a bit like John the Baptist momentarily did. But Jesus, he never doubted God for one second. You and I have uttered hateful and spiteful words like the Pharisees, but Jesus did not. He told the truth and graciously warned them about the judgment to come. Have you loved your enemies like that? Jesus' greatness can be seen in his righteousness. And added to this, it is also seen in the fact that he is God's son and servant. He willingly went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, he took upon himself the sin and the punishment due to all of them. All sinners to take upon uh, their sin if they would but turn from their sin and place their faith in him. And three days after his death, God performed the sign of Jonah, raising Jesus from the dead, thus proving to us that his righteous sacrifice was accepted by God on our behalf. And now Jesus calls us to turn from our sins, to come to him. He calls us to turn to him and be forgiven to receive rest and a joyful welcome into his heavenly family. He calls us to believe that he lived and died and was raised for us. Friends, this is what it means to embrace Jesus in faith and to do the Father's will, to trust in Jesus. And if you want to think more about what it means to truly follow after the Savior and become a child of God, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend, family member that you came with this morning who trusts in Jesus. There's, there's nothing more important you can think about than this good news that Jesus is our great Savior who can give us rest and does give us rest. We should conclude. We, we began this morning by considering the fact that we're interested in greatness as, as human beings, as people. And through Matthew 11 and 12, we've learned about the greatness of John and the great privilege that we occupy in redemptive history too. We've also considered the greatness of Jesus, the one in whom we can find rest, the Lord of the Sabbath and God's chosen servant. We've also considered God's gracious invitation to be received into his family through faith in Jesus Christ. Ironically, this great invitation calls us to humbly recognize that we're not that great, but that Jesus is. And the path to true greatness in God's sight is not to make ourselves great, but to make the greatness of Jesus Christ known by embracing him in faith. Let's pray together.